Now, let's go to our text in 1 Samuel. We've, just as a way of reminding you, we have been going back and forth in the book of 1 Samuel and 1 John. Today, we're resuming our studies in 1 Samuel. Uh, it's a, trying to get a good balance with Old Testament teaching, New Testament teaching, and how all of that comes together. Our sermon today is titled, The Proclamation of a King. The Proclamation of a King is in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Um, if, and I, you, I made an outline here with the references, so if you didn't get one, there's some extra ones in the table there in the back, or you can just raise your hand, someone can bring it to you if you haven't gotten that yet. All right? This year, on May 6th, King Charles III will be crowned the King of England. As you may know, he became king upon the death of his mother last year. Uh, queen Elizabeth was a very uh, popular queen, according to one source. Uh, but this monumental event will be a form of recognition of his leadership. And over the country and the Church of England, this will be a very sober and dignified event and will also hold some symbolic similarities uh, with our study today in um, for Samuel, this proclamation of a king, this national recognition of a sovereign. Um, so... Both carry this recognition as a sovereign, as an anointing, anointing and as a homage uh, to pay tribute to that king. And both are under the supreme design of God's ultimate sovereignty. So without much further ado, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Um, the last time I kind of covered verses 16 and I really rushed through it and I feel like there were some elements here that uh, would be important for us to discuss, so we're coming back to some of these verses, and then we're finishing up on verse 27, all right? So starting on verse 1 of chapter 10, it says here, Then Samuel took the flask of oil and poured it on his head, um, he is here referring to Saul, kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? When you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelza. And they'll say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have now been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you, saying, what shall you do about my son? Then you will go on further from there, and he will come as far as the oak of Tabor, and there three men going up to God to Bethel will meet you. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. Afterwards, you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. And this, then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. 
And Samuel keeps going here talking about the signs. And it does say in verse 9, then it happened. And when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all these signs came about on that day. Let's keep to verse 17. After the signs were fulfilled, um, thereafter, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah. And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought, you, brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. And yet you have said, no, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families and the Matrite family was taken. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, they could not, he could not be found. Therefore, they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, long live the king. And Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in a book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent it all the people away and each one to his house. Saul went to his house at Gibeah and the valiant man whose hearts God has touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him, and they did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you with uh, the confidence that everything that was written, it was for our instruction. And we pray to your God that every approach, as we approach this passage in the Old Testament, where there's so many different elements that are different from the New Testament and from our church era. We pray, Father, that you would still bring the same basic principle. Lord, may this message be theological, that may it display your character, and more importantly, your way of working with us. May it be an encouragement to us, may it be a challenge to us, to obedience to you. May you make things clear. According to your will, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you will recall, um, we were left off with the people's request for a king in Israel. Um, and there was nothing wrong with them asking for a king. In actuality, in 
Deuteronomy, um, Moses already predicted that they would want to have a king like the other nations have it. Nevertheless, they were supposed to seek a king according to the Lord's design. So God had, you know, planned all around, all along to, to bring a monarch to rule the people of Israel. The problem was, as we have seen, is that they were seeking control and security in a person and not in God ultimately. That was the problem with them seeking a king. It was replacing God with an idol. Not a physical idol per se, but a concept, the concept of control, the concept of security. That's what they were worshiping when they asked for a king. And we're going to see today some of these. We'll see that God appoints and empowers the king, and that our second point is that God proclaims their desired king. Now, this will involve some discipline from the Lord, this giving of a king, but also involve the Lord's grace. All right, so in our first point here, God appoints and empowers the king. In our last study in 1 Samuel, we learned that the longest recorded speech um, of an individual, really this long speech of Samuel here giving instructions to Saul at the time of his um, proclamation as a king. And he accomplished three things with these instructions. One, he revealed to Saul that he was God's choice to be God, um, to be Israel's first king. He also laid out for Saul a series of confirmatory signs because he was not really believing what was going on to affirm that, that he was indeed the man chosen by God. And lastly, it intimated Saul the proper relationship that was to exist between God's prophet and himself. Now, this secret unknowing, the secret unknowing here from, and it, it starts really in verse uh, 25 from the previous chapter uh, when Saul um, came to uh, Samuel inquiring about his donkeys. He will recall that. And Samuel has a total different message to him. In chapter 20, verse 25, it says, when they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel he spoke with Saul on the roof, uh, and they arose early. And at the daybreak, Samuel called to Saul on the roof and said, get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went into the street. Now, remember that he had a servant with him, right? They were looking for the donkeys. And then Samuel says, well, you let your servant go. You just... You stay here with me. So it was a private anointing. The only the two people present there was Samuel and Saul. And verse 1 says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured on his head, kissed him, and said, Has the Lord not anointed you over his people? So this message from God took a form of anointing. The act of pouring a flask of especially prepared olive oil um, with some um, aromatic um, oils. On Saul's head, apparently symbolized the staking of a divine claim on him as well as on the outpouring of the Lord's enabling spirit in the life of Saul to accomplish that uh, task of being a king. As a scholar notes, um, in Egyptian culture, this is interesting, it was the custom to anoint a vassal king, some minor kings who owed allegiance to the great king of Egypt. In this light, we might see the king of Israel not only as a king on his own right, but a vassal of 
Yahweh, who is envisaged as a true king of Israel. Though Samuel anointed Saul, it was the fact that the Lord who was responsible for designating Saul as the leader over his inheritance. The Lord called him a ruler, as you will know, has not the Lord made him a ruler? Um, it is interesting that he doesn't use the word king for Saul here. He was the word ruler. Though the term evidently implied kingship, you know, in verse 13, we'll see that he's made a king. It should not be taken here as in status inferior to that of a king. It simply means a king designate or a king to be. Samuel's kissing of Saul was also an expression of, of just respect and acceptance that the Lord has separated that man for that office. And the rhetorical question, it, it kind of resounds with Saul's doubt. You know, is, is the Lord really made me a <laughs> ruler? Is this really happening? Uh, probably fitting to Saul's own uncertainties. But in order to dissipate the young man's doubt concerning the Lord's claim from his life, as we're going to see in the following verses, he gives a lot of signs to prove him. No, this is really happening. Now, I'm going to make a comment here on anointing. I brought some uh, pictures of archaeology here um, to kind of illustrate this uh, habit of anointing. So in the Old Testament, persons were anointed, usually on special occasions by the pouring of the smearing or smearing of aromatic oils. Israel, like the, their ancient neighbors, used the anointing for a variety of secular or religious purposes. But in the Bible, mostly anointing has a religious overtone to it. Anointing almost always has a strong religious significance. Sacred objects of worship, you will see that as you read the, the, the Pentateuch, you know, the five first books, um, the anointing of objects, of holy objects, such as the altar, uh, they were anointed. And then the priests that handled these objects were also anointed. The high priest appointment to the office was marked by a special anointing. Let's take a look in scripture in Exodus chapter 30. Uh, see what is this anointing all about? What is this oil that they anointed? And kind of have an idea what is going on here. So Exodus chapter 30 verses, um, looking at verses 30 to 33. Speaking of the, this um, anointing of the priests, he says, You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they might minister as priests to me. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, They shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on one's, anyone's body, nor shall you shall make any like it in the same proportions. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever shall mix any like it, or whoever puts any of it on a layman shall be cut off from his people. So it, not, it was not everyone that had this special oil being poured on, on their heads. You know, they were either priests or someone being um, separated for an office or a task in the Old Testament. So the focus of this anointing is often a king here. Um, it's starting with Saul. Saul is anointed as the first king, and David in chapter 16 ahead, we'll see that he also is anointed 
setting a precedent that presumably was repeated with each king. If you read through Samuel and then through Kings and Chronicles, you will see this often happening. Now, the word anointing was used to set persons aside for special purposes as the leaders or saviors of Israel. Now, I want to draw your attention even to the Hebrew word, the word uh, Mashiach is the word for anointed. That's the same word where we take the word um, Messiah, right? So it simply means that they, they are anointed. They are separated for a specific office. In, in the Old Testament monarchy, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Mashiach, was the person separated to be the king. Now, in the New Testament later, we have the same word anointed, that is Christos in, in Greek, is the word that we have for Christ. So Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one of God, the, the king separated for God. So it's just a way of us understanding this. Now, I have a picture here of a couple of uh, artifacts from the ancient world. The first one, the one on the top there, is an anointing horn. In ancient Israel, the chosen king was anointed with oil. This uh, this is a um, ivory flask from the 15th century in Megiddo. was carved from an animal tusk, and it, they held perfume oils used to anoint the body. So this is one from the 15th century. The other one that we have down below, there is a jar um, that it's probably more like what Samuel had used with Saul because it's uh, from the time of the Philistines, so that would be 11th century BC. It's precisely the time when um, the, the first king came about. And it's an illustration there of how would it have been like, you know, for the pouring of the oil in his head. So the basis was olive oil, and then they had some fragrances added to that oil. All right. As we'll see later, the pouring of oil works as an illustration. And this is the, the key here. It's an illustration of the pouring of the Holy Spirit to empower those being set apart, such as one with the anointing of priests and kings served. So the, the significance of the oil as a type, um, well, the oil depicted the Holy Spirit power in strengthening Joshua and Zerubbabel to lead the people in completing the construction of the temple. This is... Um, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 to 14, has this illustration of the empowering of Zerubbabel and Joshua as um, people that were anointed by God with the Spirit to that task. So this constant flow of oil from the lampstand to the two leaders is interpreted in verse 6 of Zechariah. says, not by, by might nor by power, but my, by my Spirit. So 1 Samuel 10, 1, Samuel anointed Saul as king of Israel, the anointed representing the spirit of the Lord coming upon him to lead his people. The Old Testament, however, were only types of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. If you didn't have a chance to watch a video that I sent um, yesterday, uh, kind of explaining this anointing, um, I think it would do much better justice because it has some visual things that you kind of can follow, that this whole anointing of oil has a strong connection with the Holy Spirit empowering someone to perform a task. So I encourage you to, to, to watch that and kind of see how it was in the Old Testament and the New Testament, even though I'm going to be touching on some of that here, but just so you have 
more um, a better understanding with different texts from Scripture. All right? We see this anointing by the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. Right? In, uh, uh, when he's baptized, you even see the Holy Spirit coming in the form of a, of a dove descending on him. And then um, and as Peter, Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 10, um, 38. Actually, how about we go to Luke? I want to read this text with you. All right, so you're uh, Luke chapter 4, and we're looking at... Verses 17, um, Jesus is preaching on a synagogue here, starting his public ministry. And um, he opened the book. So Luke chapter 4, and starting in verse 17, says, And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handled to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And here's what the prophecy said. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, the spirit of the Lord, anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then what happened? Jesus closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down in the eyes of all the synagogue And he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So the Lord had anointed him for this ministry through the Spirit um, to to bring salvation. And then Acts chapter 10, 38, you don't need to open there, but uh, Peter is preaching and he talks about this event in the life of Christ. He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So, anointing is a strong connection with the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see later, um, different on the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. Now, if we keep reading the back to our text there in Samuel, we'll see these confirmatory signs that um, Samuel is talking about. Samuel gives a threefold sign to verify the authenticity of his election of the anointed leader and the commission of Samuel was just delivered him. The first two signs demonstrate God's providential control of events. It's kind of the sovereignty that Jake was just talking about earlier. And the third will demonstrate that God has chosen Saul to, this is, as his, to be his special instrument, empowered by the divine spirit for the task at hand. The confirmatory signs would take the form of encounters with three different groups of people. So he just left one man, Saul, Samuel, and then he would encounter two men with connections to his family, and they would be asking about the donkeys, Remember? Um, And then the next, he would meet three pilgrims on their way to Bethel, a worship center in Ephraim. And then finally, um, on the outskirts of Gibeah of God, in the hill of God, he would come up to a band of prophets. While in the presence of the third group, Saul would have a climatic fourth encounter, this time with the Spirit of God. 
So let's go for one sign, one by one. So the first one would authenticate that Samuel's word concerning the issue that motivated Saul to seek him in the first place, the whole thing of him looking for donkeys, it was just to confirm that. They have been found. You don't need to worry about it. That's what happened. The second sign would confirm the authenticity and legitimacy of Samuel's act of anointing Saul. The three men on the way to the worship temple, so they were, uh, not the worship temple, the um, one of the worship places that they had would present Saul with food designated by the, was, the use of those who were anointed for priests. So the food that they were carrying was not for the common folk, but the fact that they were giving it to Saul was saying, God is setting you apart in a special role just as he has set apart some priests. And then uh, Saul's acceptance of that food would require him to accept the legitimacy of the anointing. The third encounter would confirm Samuel's assertion that the Lord has also anointed Saul in the presence of a group of prophets. So when he encountered his prophets, then he himself starts prophesying. Now, if we come to verse 7, it says that it shall be that when the signs come to you, do yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. Once these signs were fulfilled and Saul is convinced of God's presence and enabling power, he's to do whatever was required of him. And it seems a little bit vague for, you know, what what is that the Lord is going to require of me? But it appears from the context that Samuel has a military action in mind. You see that he's sent him to um, remind him that he's going to a Philistine garrison in Gibeah in verse 5. So as we continue to read, Saul turned to leave Samuel and God literally changed. He overturned, literally overturned his heart in verse 9 here. It says that it had happened and when he turned his back to leave Samuel, Samuel, God changed his heart. Literally means that he had his heart uh, overturned, uh, transformed. And all these signs came about that day. So the writer assumes the occurrence of the first events, you know, all these signs happen, and now he describes in more detail this whole thing with um, these prophets coming. Um, the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, on verse 10. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily. Now, God's Spirit overpowered the former spiritually undistinguished Saul, so that he spontaneously prophesied among them. Um, I have a picture here of a, a relief, or, or yeah, it's kind of relief. Is when they build this wall with um, high um, elevation of, of the picture. So it's a group of, of uh, prophets carrying tambourines. So this last sign to Saul pointed to the empowerment by the Spirit of the Lord after he encountered the procession of prophets. They would have been playing musical instruments like drum or tambourine or harps that we can see here on this relief from the 8th century. Music was often used in a prophetic context and were, where it helped bring forth an, an ecstatic state for the pagan religion. So this is not people of Israel. This is pagan religion and they use that for that ecstasy. Now, 
this uncharacteristic behavior we see in verse 11, it says it came about that when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, what has happened to the son of Kish? Um, people are confused. It, it gave also rise to ridicule. And they asked some quiet, a question in a crypt, crypt, cryptic response. Who is their father? Who is his father? Normally, prophets in the Old Testament, they had a kind of a descent. The son of a prophet is a prophet. Um, and, and saying, like, Kish is not a prophet. What, what in the world happened to, to Saul? So you can't imagine the story it caused. Apparently, what it started, uh, the home folks was seeing this shy, retiring country boy caught up in the singing and proclaiming with its prophets. It also was out of his character. What came over the son of Kish is even Saul among the prophets, and they came up with this uh, Proverbs, you know, they kept saying that. The, the promise of the Lord's Spirit coming mightily upon Saul also hints at a military action. Now, I, I do want to spend some time on this. This coming mightily upon Saul, what does that mean? The, whole, the Hebrew word um, for that is used of the Holy Spirit three times before this passage. In each case, the Spirit empowered uh, different people to do a task, and I, I put there the references, we're not gonna open there, but in Judges, this word is used three times. The Spirit empowered Samson to perform extraordinary physical deeds in a conflict with a lion. The Lord came over him, he defeated the lion, and then later with the Philistines, Judges 14 and 15. And then in Saul's case, the empowerment of the Spirit is associated with his capacity to prophesy in this passage. But this need not to rule a military purpose for prophecy is sometime a prelude to a military action, as I put in these examples in Kings here. Now, the granting of signs for us, and I said this the last time I talked about it, it's not normative. The Lord does not do this every time that he calls someone for a task, that he has to give all these confirmatory signs. On the contrary, it'd be an accommodation to Saul's hesitancy and weak faith. This is a special occasion in which the Lord intervenes in a special way to get Saul's attention. Though divine enablement is always necessary for carrying out God's will, verse 6 should not be understood as a model. This is not a model for us to follow. God does not send confirmatory signs to prove that he called someone for ministry, for instance, or someone for marriage, for instance. He's not going to send signs. That's not how he operates nowadays. People cannot expect the Lord's Spirit to rush upon them and change them into a different person. This is no warrant for assuming such a broader application in the context or in the New Testament context. Now, I'm going to take some time here to digress, okay? Because I believe for us in the New Testament, there's just this huge river between that context and our context, what is the, the distance? What is the difference? There is this distinction between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Let me start with John 14, um, 16 and 17, where Jesus is talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. What would he do? John chapter 14. 
and we're looking at verses 16 and 17. John 14, and we're looking at verses 16 and 17. Jesus is giving the role of the Spirit here. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Who is this helper? The Holy Spirit. That he may be with you forever. It's a key thing here. He will be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he, be, he will be in you. So there is a, a, right there uh, the distinction. Jesus indicated following the Pentecost that the Holy Spirit would begin a new ministry to believers that was unlike the one in the Old Testament. The emphasis of this passage is in the new ministry that be indwelling in the Holy Spirit in contrast with simply being with them. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was with people temporarily, but not um, in the New Testament, they would be with them permanently, as he says here, forever. While the promise of John 14 pertains to all believers, the indwelling is permanent. There, is, there was an indwelling in the Old Testament that was selective, and it was only temporary. You, you don't see everyone in the Old Testament being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It says that he came upon them or that he was with them. The Holy Spirit came upon some people in the Old Testament, um, such as Joshua. It says that he dwelt in Joshua and in David. Um, then this, uh, Charles Ryer suggests that there is no great distinction between indwelling or coming upon, except the idea that coming upon seems to imply a temporary and transitory character of the Spirit's relationship with the Old Testament saints. So that is the difference is that it was only temporary with the Old Testament saints. The temporary coming upon is seen in that the Spirit came upon an individual for a specific task. It is reasonable to assume that after the task has been carried out, that the Spirit was no longer upon that individual. As we'll see later, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, but also in chapter 16, it says that it departed from him. In Psalm 51, 11, David was fearful that the Lord was going to leave him. And he prays, Lord, do not let your spirit leave me. Likewise, in the Old Testament, the spirit's indwelling in the life of a person had no evident relationship to the person's spiritual condition. Now, you will remember that there is a role in the Holy Spirit in saving believers. He is the one that convicts them of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. That's how we come to faith, is when the Spirit puts us the faith to believe and trust in Christ. In the Old Testament, it wasn't so. It wasn't a saving coming of the Spirit. It wasn't regenerating. Obviously, there were some of them, they were saved. But take, for instance, a few examples here. He came upon Japheth to defeat the Ammonites. It was for a specific task. came upon Japheth to uh, wage war against the Ammonites in Judges 11.29. Then he came upon Samson to defeat the Philistines. And then he came upon Balaam to prophesy blessing concerning Israel 
in Numbers 24-2. Now, an evaluation of this text showed that the involved empowerment for a physical activity, none of them had to do with salvation from, sense, from sin in any sense. I mean, just, just look at um, the empowering that had nothing to do with the spiritual condition of the person. Jephthah was the son of a harlot living in an idolatrous environment. Samson, I mean, while you can talk about Samson, was a carnal man living to satisfy his carnal desires. And lastly, Balaam was an unbeliever. He's, even in the New Testament, he's called the false prophet, a man who is greedy for money, that he would do anything for money. And yet, the Spirit came upon them. So the element of empowering or enabling for a specific task is an element, is the one element that we have in common. Now, we measured the distance between the river, right? In the Old Testament, the Spirit was only temporary, was only uh, not for salvation necessarily, and it was for a um, limited time. In the New Testament, there is a, a salvation involved with that. There is a regeneration involved, and it is not selective. It was in the New Testament. Actually, all believers have the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So this is the distance of the river. But now, what is the bridge that connects these two, um, these two contexts? The bridge is the enabling for a task. The Holy Spirit is still enables people to execute a task in the New Testament. So the element of empowering or enabling for a specific task is an element that's somewhat in common in the Old Testament saints. The Spirit's indwelling was a sovereign working of God in the person to perform a specific task. For example, in Saul, he was delivering um, the people militarily. And then in some texts of the Old Testament, even say that the Holy Spirit filled some people. God filled Bezalel uh, with the Spirit, giving him wisdom and craftsmanship, Exodus 31 and 2, to make artistic designs for working gold and silver. So the Lord was enabling that man, filled him, to enable him to execute a task. In the same way, the Spirit still empowers those whom he dwells in dwells for service. So let's take a look in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 4 and 13. And I think that is the connection that we, we need to make. You know, the Old Testament was different, but some principles still say, stays the same. What does he do with those that he indwells? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, mind you, the context here in the New Testament is Paul is writing to the Corinthians, a, a church that is very problematic, that they're misusing the gifts, the spiritual gifts, and yet he's saying, here's what you have. And he's, let's start in verse 4. He says here, um, chapter 12, verse 4. Now, there are varieties of, varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, who is the Spirit he's talking about? The Holy Spirit indwelling the believers. And there are a variety of ministries in the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God works all things in all persons, 
Is this talking about to all persons in all the world? No. He's specifically talking about believers. The Spirit would only come on believers differently than the Old Testament. But to each one is giving manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And that's the key here. God enables and empowers believers for the common good of his church. There's no spiritual gift that is not for the good of the church. And that was a problem with the Corinthians. They were using the, the gifts of the Spirit for their own benefit. It wasn't, it wasn't edifying the church. It wasn't doing anything for the good of the church. And he's saying God has given the Spirit this spiritual gift so that you might use it for the good of the church. For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith in the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. So he will talk about some miraculous um, gifts that were given primarily to the, um, the early church, and then obviously we still have in the church words of wisdom and, and, and knowledge and um, explaining what a scripture means and applying that. Now in verse 11, it says, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each individually as he wills. For even as one body is one, yet how many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we're all baptized in one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. So do you see the difference? And do you see how God is still at work in his people to enable them? Paul is going to go on here in a discussion for people that feel inferior in a church. They think, I don't have many abilities. I am nothing. I have no importance. I am like a thumb in the body. I, I'm good for nothing. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. You're just as important as an eye or as an ear. All, everybody in the church is important because God, through the Spirit, had empowered them to do what he asked them to do. That's the same truth that is seen in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. It says that he gave some as apostles, not in our days, gave some as prophets, not in our days, but he gave some as evangelists. Do we have that in our days? Yes, we do. He gave some as pastors. Yes, we do. He gave him some as teachers. All of this, the Lord is giving and gifting them to execute. Oh, I don't know how to evangelize. I don't know how to, to encourage someone and counsel someone. Well, the Spirit empowers the church to do that. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So, be encouraged. This is an amazing truth. If God could empower a dubious man like Saul and use him to deliver his people, could you only imagine what the Spirit could do through those who are now continuously with him? Because then he was only temporarily with them, let alone now that he's always with them. What excuses have we to say that we can't serve God, that we have no importance in the body of Christ, that we are insignificant? Absolutely not. You, dear Christian, you still serve a mighty God that empowers people through his spirit. In the same way that he empowered Saul. Let's keep moving our text here. 
But I think it was important for me to make this distinction and bring this um, connection with us here. A second point is that God proclaims their desired king. Remember that this is what they wanted. They wanted a king, and God gives them a king. And I put here that this giving of a king is accompanied by God's discipline. It's accompanied by God's discipline. I mean, if you just read verse 14, Saul comes back, and he's talking with his uncle, and he says, where did you go? And he said, to look for the donkeys that we saw and could not be found, we went to Samuel. And then his uncle asked, what did Samuel tell you? He told us plainly about the donkeys that had been found. And then he says, but he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. The returning to his hometown, Saul approached his uncle, was approached by his uncle, indicated that there was nothing special that happened about it. Saul's response was honest, though deceptively incomplete. The prophet had informed them that the donkeys had been found, yes. But he also told him that he was made king of Israel. In verses 17 to 19, we keep hearing here now a proclamation from Samuel. It says, thereafter, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And, and he said to the sons of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. What well, that sounds like. You read the Old Testament prophets. That is judgment coming. Thus says the Lord. That sounds like judgment. That doesn't sound like a good thing. Mitzpah, and it's important that they meet here in Mitzpah. It's located in the territory of Benjamin. I'm a, it's a picture of a potential archaeological site in Israel. It's a hill area. It's called the Tel um, in Nazbe. It's showing here, and it's eight miles north of Jerusalem, located on the main road from Jerusalem to the northern hill country. Now, although there is much erosion in the site, archaeologists uncovered some remains of walls, gates, and towers from that time period of, of Saul. This is the second time that Samuel has called the Israelites to assemble in his place, Mitzpah. The name derives its roots from uh, the word Ophrah, that is to watch or to spy out. Remember, it's in a hill, so from there people can, be, can see and spy. It's a not local or not watchtower, and it's found in a high ground. Ironically, the site chosen for the installation of Saul as a Benjamite as king was also the site where Israel had previously promised to exterminate all the descendants of Benjamin. Remember how the book of Judges ended with the annihilation of the Benjamites? They were massacrating them and just a few survived and they had to find wives for them. They promised at Mizpah they would kill all the Benjamites and now we have in Benjamin, a proclamation of a king that is from Benjamin. Irony. Mispah was remembered as a place of occultic significance as well as military and political center. After the first fall of Jerusalem, Mitzpah became a capital of the Babylonian province. And in later Jewish history, it was remembered as a great center of prayer and worship. Samuel knew that it was God's will to select Saul as king. 
but he also understood that the day's events were motivated by Israel's rejection of God as king. At this public convocation at Mizpah, Samuel acted not as a judge, but as a prophet. He first act in the assembly was not to proclaim Israel's new leader, but to reveal their prophetic judgments. The choice of words in verse 18 here is very selective. I brought you out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of Egyptians. It's really reminding them of the covenant that happened at Sinai. This failure to keep the basic, most basic requirement of Israel covenant king. What was the very first commandment given to the Israelite? You should not have other gods before me because I delivered you. And yet they were seeking to put their confidence in a person to deliver them. Verse 19, he says, now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Samuel's speech to this point is quite negative in tone and resembles a prophetic judgment speech. At this point, one expects an announcement of judgment, but instead Samuel summons the people for the purpose of selecting a king. The substitution of the selection process of announcement of judgment suggests that the selection of a king is a disciplinary and punitive act from God. You want a king? You're going to have it. 2021. Keep moving here. Samuel brought all the tribes, and, and we see this kind of uh, weird way of selecting the, the putting of the tribes. And what is helpful here is that it's a presented here, however, it serves as a second function. It reinforced the notion that Saul's selection was divine judgment against Israel. The only other occasion, this is interesting, the only other occasion where God was selecting people from tribes and then getting to a specific family, remember that is in Joshua chapter 7. Let's go there. Joshua chapter 7. And this is what New Testament writers normally do. They, the Old Testament writers, they tend to refer back a lot to, to stories and make the connection in the way they phrase things. So chapters, Joshua chapter 7, verse 16 and 18. Remember that Achan has sinned and God was disciplining the people because of his sin, because he took some um, gold and stuff from, from the war that he shouldn't have. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought um, near by Israel by the tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zeharites, and he brought the family of the Zeharites near man by man, and Zabadee was taken. And he brought his household near man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabadee, son of Zerah, was taken. So you see the, the similarity there? That this is a convocation is not just a convocation, proclamation of a king. It is, it is judgment that the Lord is bringing upon them. Curiously, when Saul, son of Kish, was chosen, he was not to be found. I mean, just showing already that this king is, not, is no good. Human efforts failed to locate Saul. It was only after acquiring, inquiring of the Lord that they learned 
that he had hidden himself behind the baggage. Verse 22. Saul's actions, however odd, were consistent with the portrayal of Saul to this point. Previously, the king designate had shut, shut out both his servants and his uncle from any knowledge of his destiny. His sh- sh- apparently shyness to tell this. Saul's vacancy at home coronation suitable for shadows of reign that would vacate responsibilities associated with the exercise of godly rule. At the same time, it, I, I also see that it's interesting that the Lord tells them, you know, it, you need this, I'm, I'm actually in charge of this. I'm going to tell where he is. It, it shows that the Lord is still in charge. And then keep reading, verse 23 says, so they ran and took him from there, and where he stood among the people, he was taller than any other than any other man. Elsewhere in the scripture, only non-covenant people are noted as being tall. Through the narrator's selection of this feature as the only attribute used to describe Saul, he successfully linked Saul with those who represent a threat to the safety and integrity of the Lord's covenant people. There is no one like him among everybody else. This is very different than the description that the Lord gives, for instance, when he selects, when he selects David. Just turn your Bible to chapter 16, verse 7. What is the, the distinction that the Lord makes here, how he selects someone? Verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance, but his height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That a way of choosing kings based on appearance really contrasts with the, uh, the world. That's how they selected man, because of their appearance. This is a statue of Ramesses II in Memphis, Egypt, um, from the 13th century BC in ancient Near East. The ideal of kingship, a premium was placed on physical attributes. One of the most vivid examples of this description is Ramesses, is depicted as a beautiful youth who was well-developed with strong arms. He was said to be adept of horsemanship, rowing, archery, and his physical prowess is highlighted. He could outrow all others, and he allegedly shot an arrow through a thick copper shield. That's a lot of strength. Though one must not take room for hyperbole, an Egyptologist points out that his mummy is that of an exceptionally tall and strongly built man. What do we think of all of this? When God's people foolishly seek false security and reject his authority, he may discipline them by letting them experience the consequences of their behavior. While the Lord protects the people from their lack of foresight, he also decides to discipline for their lack of commitment to him. As the story unfolds, it becomes clear that he employs their superficial standard in choosing a king, one that focuses on outward appearance rather than inner qualities. Saul, remember what his name means? The one asked for. That's what his name means. 
It will prove to be a disappointment, and his reign will jeopardize Israel's security and bring the nation precariously close to a disaster. Saul illustrates the old proverb, be careful what you ask for, because you might just have to get it. Once Prince Philip of England, at the height of a recession in 1981, illustrated these proverbs with this famous goth. He said, everybody was saying that we must have more leisure. Now they're complaining they're unemployed. They were wanting to want more free time, then they got it. This famous goth perfectly encapsulates the human dilemma. When we want something and we go after it tenaciously or ask for it insistently, we are sometimes very undiscerning about the consequences of what we're asking for. We often live to regret the answer to our requests. Even when God displays his mercy, he sometimes disciplines his people for their ultimate good. Hebrews 12 talks about that, right? And his goodness, because he cares about our growth, he disciplines us. Forgiveness does not necessarily eliminate for the need for discipline. And then lastly, I think that God's discipline also, um, this giving of a king, involves an accompaniment by grace. You see on verse 24, the Lord says, you see the man whom the Lord has chosen. God was ultimately in charge of that. He knew the plight of his people, how they were struggling for security. And he did use Saul to, as we're going to see on our next uh, message, um, that Saul does deliver them. Samuel that was used to tame according that the people's early demand, but he also says that the Lord did um, provide for them. Says that some men supported Saul, you know, this men of valors, men whose, uh, whose heart God has touched. That is a grace that they gave support to Saul. And then we have these worthless fellow, fellows who despise Saul, refuse to support him. But one thing I want to draw your attention here, lastly, is it says that um, then Samuel told the people, verse 25, the ordinances of the kingdom, and he wrote them in a book and placed it before the Lord. So there are two things here that I wanted to close with. First is that we can find comfort that no matter what human involvement might bring, even requests they're foolish, God is still turning things around for their good. God is ultimately in charge in putting people in authority. Authority is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Proverbs 16.33, I think it illustrates this whole even casting of lots. It says that the lot is cast in the lap. People think it's by chance, but every decision is from the Lord. Even our bad prayer requests is under the Lord's sovereignty. I mean, I'm not going to read that, but you will remember Hannah's prophetic song. She talks about who is the one that raises kings up? Who is the one that brings them down? It is the Lord. So it is a comfort. It is a grace. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve the care for, that the Lord has for us. And then secondly, the Lord gives this new institution, the monarchy, for the good of his people. Even though it was a faulty leader to start with, 
um, you know, as I draw your attention there, God gave parameters how a king should rule. And then we do see that in Israel, we have really good kings that do take those things seriously. They have copies of the law on how they ought to live. So maybe not yet, but as you continue to study the life of the kings in Israel, you will take seriously their task of exercising justice by restraining evil in the midst of the people. This is an encouragement even for us New Testament believers. I'm not going to open there, but Romans 13 says that God give us authorities. God give us governors for our good. If you do what is right, we have no reason to be afraid because they are meant by God to protect from evil. Obviously, we know that we have politicians that are corrupt, that do not honor God's word. And yet, we still can rest in God's sovereignty that he uses all, and ultimately, the king of kings will come and will take his kingdom here on this earth. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for your word that has not come void in our lives, Lord, that encourages us, that comforts us with the promise of the Spirit that even as you acted in Saul, you also empower believers to serve you even today. Lord, and we get to rejoice in this fellowship, this communion of believers that we can serve one another with the gifts that you have given us. Lord, we also thank you for bringing authorities, for putting people in power. Sometimes bad leaders, that is meant for you, for disciplining us and making us more like Christ. And yet we, we have so many reasons to be thankful for your protection, Lord. We know that we're protected from many times from robbery, from insecurity. We know there is a restraint of evil even now as we speak. We're thankful for the freedom to be in a country where we can still worship you without being afraid of being broke into. We praise you and worship you and be with our hearts as we prepare to celebrate this meal, this supper, in honor and glory of our Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.